have been all this while in these sermons on David's act. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. I am now come to God's act, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Thou forgavest. That is not only my sin, but the malignity of it, with all its aggravations, all its heinous circumstances. Now here, touching God's act, two things are to be observed. First, the manner of bringing in this act of God. The psalmist uh, psalmist doth not bring it in thus with an ergo. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, therefore he forgave the iniquity of my sin. But it is with an et, a conjunctive particle, and not a causal. I confess, and thou forgavest. Secondly, observe this farther, the manner of the expression, the confession was in purpose and intention, but the forgiveness is actual. Observe from hence this note, that God doth recompense the very gracious purposes as well as performances of his own servants. God forgave, but David did but purpose to confess. I said, I will confess and thou forgavest. O beloved, what a God do ye serve! Your masters are not pleased with your purposes to work, if you do not labor with your hands. You serve a God which takes will for work. God takes purposes, if they be real, for performances. The Lord doth recompense not only gracious performances, but also gracious purposes in his own servants. The use or corollary from hence is this, that wicked men look to it. God will not only punish their wicked practices, but their wicked purposes. Didst thou ever purpose to be unclean? And it may be thou wast interrupted, that thou couldst not have secrecy and opportunity. Why, God will punish thee for thy purpose, though thou never dost act it. Beloved, it is not only what evil thou hast done, but what evil thou wouldst have done. Wouldst not thou have been an oppressor, if the world would not have cried shame on thee? Wouldst not thou have been a drunkard, if the world would not brand thee with infamy? God will punish wicked men for evil purposes. Further, to godly men thou canst not mourn, but wouldst thou mourn? Thou canst not confess sin, but wouldst thou confess sin? Thou canst not break thy heart, but wouldst thou break thy heart? God looks on your purposes with approbation, as well as your practices. Thirdly, God doth not only look on wicked men's purposes to punish them for them, and good men's purposes to reward them for them. But God doth look on the purposes of devils to do hurt, for to prevent them. A notable passage, Luke 21, Peter, Peter, saith Christ, Satan hath desired to winnow thee like wheat. I have actually prayed. The hurt was only the devil's purpose and the devil's desire, but when the temptation was but in the desire, Then saith Christ, I have actually prayed for thee. O fall down and admire the condescension of Christ. He doth crown your purposes and endeavors and desires. I said, I will confess my transgression, and thou hast forgiven the iniquity of my sin. The doctrine I am now to handle is this that there is a necessary connection between a penitential confession of sin and forgiveness of sin. I confessed, and God forgave. You have frequent testimonies that inculcate this on your thoughts. Proverbs 28.13, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Job 33.27, He looketh upon men, And if any say, I have sinned, and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not, verse 28, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life 
shall see the light. In the handling of this point, there are these particulars which I shall dispatch. First, what is meant by forgiving sin? To explicate this, there are three things which are needful to be spoken to. First, for the varieties of names and expressions of forgiveness. First pardon of sin is casting of sin behind the back, Isaiah thirty-eight seventeen. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. In scripture, to cast a thing behind the back signifies to forget and disregard it. So wicked men cast God's covenant behind their backs. That is, they do not mind it. They will not obey it. So when God is said to cast sin behind his back, he will take no notice of it so as to punish it. A second expression that illustrates pardon of sin is this. It is called a casting of sin into the bottom of the sea. Micah 7.17 He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It is an allusion unto God's great judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptian host when they pursued the Israelites. They came to the Red Sea and thinking to go through, as the Israelites did, the sea fell in upon them and they were drowned in the bottom of the sea. So saith God, I will deal with sin as I dealt with Pharaoh. You shall never be troubled more with them, not unto condemnation. You need not fear the rising of sin again against you. Sin is not like unto light weeds in the sea that will swim of themselves, but lead that is cast into the sea. The illusion holds here, Exodus 15.10, Thou didst blow with the wind, the sea covered them, they sank as lead in the mighty waters. God, when he pardons sins, he casts them into the bottom of the sea. It lies like lead. It can never rise of itself in a way of condemnation to a justified man, to a pardoned sinner. Thirdly, pardon of sin is expressed in Scripture by blotting out Acts 3.19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Isaiah 43.25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. This is a metaphor taken from men when a man is not able to pay his debt. The creditor doth cancel the bond, blots out the writing, and breaks the seal, that nothing shall prevail in law against this poor man. So that the Lord doth cancel the bond and blots out the writing that neither sin nor the devil shall have any process against him in a way of condemnation. Fourthly, pardon of sin is expressed in scripture by acquitting of a man from his iniquity. Job 10.14 If I sin, then thou markest me and thou wilt not or acquit me, not set me free from my iniquity. Acquitting is equivalent to a term of law giving you a discharge and dismission of the court. The Lord, in pardoning of sin, gives a man legal discharge that no proceedings of heaven shall go against him. Fifthly, pardon of sin is called in Scripture a covering of sin. Psalm 32, 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Beloved, if pardon of sin had consisted in the removing of sin, we had been undone. Pardon of sin doth not consist in the removal of all sin out of a man, but in the covering of sin. God will hide sin, that the fierceness of his wrath and the eye of his indignation shall not look on it to condemnation. It is the same word that refers to garments. If a man hath a mole or when on his body which his garment covers, these infirmities are not seen by men. Beloved, God covers sin as with a garment, to wit, with the long robe of Christ's righteousness, sin is covered in thee by the righteousness of Jesus Christ.
Sixthly, pardon of sin is expressed in Scripture by washing and purging away of sin. Psalm 51.2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He means there in reference to justification, not sanctification. That pardon of sin presents a man to God without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. That though you have many spots in regard of your sanctification, yet you have no spot in regard of your justification. Seventhly, pardon of sin is expressed in Scripture not by not remembering of sin. Jeremiah thirty one thirty four, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It is an allusion to the scapegoat, which was to bear the sins of the people on his head, to carry them into the land of forgetfulness. Thus the Lord that remembers all things, that God is said graciously not to remember the sins of his people, not to remember them, so as to damn them for them. He will forget your iniquities and remember them no more. Lastly, pardon of sin is expressed in Scripture by not imputing of sin. Romans 4.8 Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not impute sin. It is a word drawn from merchants when they have a friend that owes them money that they care not whether they receive or no. They do not put it down in their book. God will not impute sin. He will not set sin on the score. He will not put sin to thine account. Though sin be in thee yet, yet it is not imputed to thee. Thus these names or expressions do something illustrate the nature of forgiveness. In the next place, to inquire how many ways a sin may be said to be forgiven, first, in regard to God's decree, And so sin is forgiven before all worlds, because God intended to deliver the elect that such a remnant and number of men should have sin pardoned. Secondly, sin is said to be forgiven when the Lord doth manifest forgiveness of sin. Thirdly and chiefly, sin is said to be forgiven when the eternal guilt and condemnation due for that sin is taken away. When God doth expiate or take off the guilt of sin, in that properly lies the nature of forgiveness. In the third place, what is considered in in sin, when God is said to forgive it, this is worth your understanding. Three things are to be considered in sin. First, the blot and pollution of sin. And this cannot be taken away by pardon. Sin is a sin. And though it be pardoned, The pollution of sin is not taken away by pardon. The blot remains. Secondly, there is considered the the desert of sin. It deserves damnation and the wrath of God, though it be pardoned. This is not taken away. Third thing considered is this. The ordination or appointment of a sinner to eternal punishment, and this is fully taken away by pardon. When God doth give remission of sin, he doth take away all obligation to wrath, death, hell, and damnation. This is properly the nature of forgiveness of sin. It is a gracious and a free act of God, whereby he acquits a sinner from eternal guilt and eternal punishment that is due to all his sins in an eternal punishment. God doth not acquit a pardoned man from external punishments. God may pardon thy sin, yet he may punish thee externally for thy sins, but not eternally, and thus much for the first particular. The second particular is, what kind of confession of sin is it that hath such a necessary connection with forgiveness of sin? I confessed, and thou forgavest. For answer in the general, it is not every kind of confession that carries a connection of pardon, Saul confessed his sin, but God did not take away his sin, but took away his kingdom. It is not every kind of confession that hath a connection with forgiveness of sin, but that confession which hath connection with pardon of sin, it hath six concomitants joined with it. First, it is a free and ingenuous confession. 
not extorted by force, not with sinful reserves, but a free, full, and ingenuous confession. That is the meaning of that phrase, Psalm 32, 21. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Guile is not there taken largely in opposition to hypocrisy, but for a sinful reserve of sin, when a man will not be free and open in confessing his sin unto God. David would freely and fully open himself and and confess his evils unto God. That confession that is a free and ingenuous confession, it hath pardon of sin annexed to it. The confessions of them that roll sin under the tongue as sweet as a sweet morsel that they would not part with have not justification entailed on them. Those confessions only are connected with forgiveness that are ingenuous and free. Secondly, that confession which hath pardon annexed to it is a penitential confession, a confession that hath sorrow of heart mixed with it. Psalm 38 18, for I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. True confession of sin is rather a voice of mourning than a voice of words. It hath ever a sorrow and a grief of heart joined with it. That prescription that God gave to the leper in the law, that he should be cleansed from his leprosy, and in Leviticus 13.45, and the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, Unclean, unclean. It's worth your notice. He was to cry twice, I am unclean. I am unclean. There was his confession. But what was joined with his confession before he could be cleansed? Two things he must do. First, he must rent his clothes. To note that God must have brokenness of heart and sorrow of heart joined with confession of sin. Secondly, he must cover his lip. To note shame that must be mingled with his, with his sorrow. To show that to us that have an unclean leprosy of sin in us, the crying, I am unclean, unclean is not enough, but there must be the renting of the heart and shame of face. These must be mingled with those confessions that have a connection with forgiveness. Third concomitant of confession that hath pardon annexed to it is this, that there must be a voluntary and a free leaving of those sins which we do confess. To confess sin, yet to have a, a loathness in the spirit, to part with it, is no real confessing of sin. Proverbs 28.13, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Confession is there joined with a forsaking of sin in case mercy be obtained. One calls confession a spiritual vomit. You know, a man that is burdened in the stomach would be willingly rid of that load on his stomach that doth oppress nature. A man that doth confess sin truly, would as willingly be rid of sin on his conscience as a man that is sick at his stomach would be rid of that burden which doth oppress it. Such a confession hath pardon annexed with it. Fourthly, that confession which hath pardon annexed with it is joined with unfeigned sorrow for sin. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9. Fifthly, that confession that hath pardon annexed to it, is joined with a holy awe and fear of running into the commission of those sins that we do confess to God. Psalm 38.18 compared with Psalm 39.1 For I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. I said I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. David's confessing sin did work in him a holy awe and a holy care to take heed of those sins that he had confessed, to confess sin and to be bold and adventurous to run into sin hath not such a connection with pardon. 
Sixthly, that confession that hath pardon annexed to it doth quicken the soul to strong and earnest supplication to prayer. David confessed sin, and his confession quickened prayer. Daniel confessed sin, and confession quickened supplication. Daniel 9.20, And while I was speaking, and praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people, Israel, etc. Beloved, when confessions of sin are to prayer as the whetstone to the knife, when you sharpen your affections and put a keen edge on your hearts in prayer, this is an evident token that such a confession hath a connection with forgiveness of sin. So much for the second particular. The third particular is to show you how doth this connection between confession of sin and forgiveness of sin consist with the freeness of God's grace in pardoning of sin, in placing a connection between pardon and confession? How doth this consist with the freeness of God's grace in pardoning of sins? For answer, first, if we should place a causality or a merit in confession of sin to procure pardon, as the papists do, this would overthrow the free grace of God in forgiving sin. Though we do place a connection between confessing sin and pardon of sin, yet we do not place any merit in those confessions. We do not place any worth, any causality in those confessions. That is my first answer. Secondly, the scripture makes a fair consistency between man's confessing sin and God's free grace in forgiving sin. The scripture makes a double consistency, first in regard of the precept that doth enjoin and command confession, in regard of the means that this is a way to procure pardon. First in regard of the command, God doth command us to confess sin. Now no command of God that he would have us do can derogate from his free grace. Therefore, surely, this command can no way eclipse the free grace and the freeness of grace in what he will do. Secondly, in regard of means as a way to get pardon, God is the efficient cause, and Christ is the meritorious cause of pardon, but yet confession of sin is that cause which logicians call causa fanae esquam, without which pardon of sin shall never be obtained. I confessed, and thou forgavest. A third answer. Though no man can be pardoned for his confession, yet no man shall have pardon without confession. Repent that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 3. No blotting out of sin without repentance. There must be a sorrow and a bewailing of sin before it can be pardoned. That Christ was broken from sin, it will no ways exempt you Uh, from being broken for sin. Though Christ was a man of sorrows, and all in a way of satisfaction, yet you must shed tears for sin in a way of contrition and humiliation. Lastly, this connection between confessing sin and God's forgiving sin is not as if our confession did bear any proportion in a way of satisfaction to God's forgiving of sin. Though God doth forgive sin upon confession, yet it is not for confession. There is more evil in thy sin that is an offense to God than there can be good in thy confession. And thus much uh, for the third particular, that there is a connection between God's act of forgiving sin and our confessing sin. I now come to answer the objections. The first objection is this. Why, but you will say, what need all this pressing of confession of sin, urging that there is a necessary connection between man's confession of sin and God's forgiving sin? What needs confession? God doth, doth not God's eyes run to and fro the earth? Doth not God behold the evil and the good, and fully knoweth all the evils under the sun? What need we tell God when he knoweth all things? This objection the Anabaptists make against confession of sin. For answer, first, negatively, we do not confess sin because only of God's sovereignty 
because God will have us to confess sin. God's sovereignty may command us and say, you shall come with ropes about your necks, and I will make you lie in the dust. Secondly, we do not confess sin to inform God of our sins, for God knoweth all things. Thirdly, we do not confess sin by way of satisfaction, as if our confession could satisfy God's justice for the wrong we have done him. But positively, though God doth know our sins, yet we are bound to confess our sins upon many solid grounds. First, though God doth see our sins, yet we are bound to confess our sins that we may see them ourselves, that we may put memory and conscience and heart at at work in the review and in the remembrance of our evils. We do not confess sin to inform God, but ourselves, that we might see sin more distinctly and so put conscience at work. Secondly, we do confess sin to stir up more sorrow for sin, Psalm 38, verse 18. Thirdly, we confess sin on this ground, that by confessing sin to God, we might see sin to become exceeding sinful. Confession of sin, saith Bernard, is enjoined by God for this reason, that thou mightest magnify the greatness of grace and see the greatness of sin. If a man should never see his sin, he could never magnify God's grace in and pardoning mercy. Fourthly, that you might more prize the merits of Christ. Should a man never confess sin to God, he would never see of what value Christ's blood is of. A, phys- a physician's skill is not seen in healing a slight green wound, but in the healing of a man of a deadly disease. Beloved, an ordinary plaster can cure a green wound. If you look on your sins as green wounds, you will never prize Christ, nor put an estimate on his merits and blood. When a man can confess his evil with all its heinous circumstances, this, this doth greaten the merits of Christ. Fifthly, you are to confess sin because the confession of sin doth give glory to the attributes of God. It gives glory to his omnisciency. You do by your confessions acknowledge that God seeth your sins. It gives glory to his patience, that he would spare you in the act of sin, that he would not throw you to hell in the very act of sin. It gives glory to his justice. Psalm 51.4 Against thee, thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. It confesseth God's mercy. And this Paul doth, 1 Timothy 1.13, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy. He confessed his sin that so he might even greaten the abundance of God's grace and love. Again, of confession of sin, there is great use because it doth ease the mind. It gives vent to a troubled mind. Concealed guilt breeds horror and hell in the conscience. It is an ingenious, ingenuous clearness when a man can open himself to God in free confession, which doth allay the anguish and trouble of mind. Job 32.18 For I am full of matter, the spirit within me constraineth me. Verse 19, Behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent, it is ready to burst like new bottles. Verse 20, I will speak that I may be refreshed, I will open my lips and answer. A godly man is full of matter, of confession to God, and like a vessel ready to burst till he can vent himself by confession in God's presence. This is the answer to the first objection. A second objection is this. I, but you will say, what need such pressing of of confessing of sin as having a connection with pardon? For as God is never the better by my grace, so God is never the worse by my sin. As my grace adds nothing to God's holiness, so my sin can detract nothing from God's glory. For God is nevertheless glorious, though I be never so much sinful. One might urge, as Elihu did in Job 5.37, If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? Verse 8, Thy wickedness 
may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the Son of Man. Therefore, if God receives no injury by my sin, what need I confess sin to God? Beloved, this is an objection that the antinomians make. For answer, first it is true, God is not the worse, and hath not the less glory, though thou hast the more sin. Yet, this is no thanks to a sinner, for a sinner doth what in him lies, to take all glory from God, to pull God out of heaven. It is no thanks to thee that God is never the worse for thy sin. Secondly, in a sense, God doth receive injury by a man's sin, as first, if thou consider the eternal attributes of God in themselves, his justice, his glory, his goodness, his wisdom. So God is unchangeable, immutably blessed, and as our graces can give no additions to his holiness, so our sin can give no diminution to his glory. Sin is an injury to God because God hath less external glory. Thirdly, though our sins can do no injury to God to make God unholy or to make God unhappy, yet sin doth great injury to yourselves. If thou beest sinful, what wilt thou do against God? Why, thou canst not bring God out of heaven, though thou mayest bring thyself into hell. God receives no diminution of his holiness, of his wisdom, of his glory by thy sinfulness. Yet thou shalt not have glory, holiness, happiness, heaven, nor eternal life. Thou shalt receive miseries by thine own sins. And thus I have done with the doctrinal part of this point, to wit that there is a necessary connection between men's confessing sin and God's act in forgiving of sin. I now come to the use, which is for trial, to put you on a diligent inquiry how you may know whether God hath brought you into a pardoned estate and hath forgiven the iniquity of your sin, how it may be known whether God hath forgiven you your iniquities. There are ten ways to discover this. I shall divide them into this order. There are six concomitants that do attend a person in a pardoned estate and four characters laid down in Scripture of a man whose sin is forgiven him. First, the concomitants are those things in Scripture which do attend or accompany a person whose sin is forgiven. First, in Scripture we find that remission of sin is accompanied with renovation of the heart. If sin be remitted, the heart is renewed. They are both joined together. Revelation 2.17 To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Interpreters do give this sense of that promise. You read of two things, a white stone and a new name, written in that stone. The white stone, it is an expression borrowed from the practice of the Gentiles, who in their judicature did use a white stone. If a malefactor was condemned and had the sentence of death passed upon him, he was given him a black stone in token of condemnation. But if a man had a white stone given him, it was a token of absolution or pardon. In allusion to this, Christ doth here promise pardon of sin, which is meant by the white stone. But what must be written on this stone? There must be written on this white stone a new name, that is, renovation, renewing of the heart, so that if so be the nature of a man be not renewed, the sin of a man is not pardoned. Therefore do not boast of having your white stone if there be a blank on that stone, if there be nothing written on that stone. If holiness be not written on that stone, pardon of sin hath renewing of nature to attend it. A second concomitant is this. Remission by forgiveness of sin is accompanied with endearedness of the love to Jesus Christ. This is laid down in Luke 7.47. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. It is a concomitant that did attend her pardon 
Much was forgiven her, therefore she loved much. Thirdly, forgiveness of sin is accompanied in Scripture with a cordial confession of sin unto God. I acknowledged my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fourthly, forgiveness of sin is accompanied in Scripture with a cordial forgiving other men all the personal wrongs and injuries that they have done you. Matthew 18.35 So likewise shall my heavenly Father do unto you, if ye from your heart forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. It is in the Lord's Prayer annexed, forgive us our trespasses, Matthew 6. So that forgiving of other men is in Scripture as an attendant or concomitant of God's forgiving us. Put on as the elect of God, saith the Apostle, bowels of mercy, forbearing and forgiving one another. A fifth concomitant that attends forgiveness of sin is repentance from dead works. Repentance for sin is a concomitant that is ever joined with the forgiveness of sin. Acts 5.31, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There they are linked together to give repentance and remission of sin. It is a question among the schoolmen whether God by his absolute power can forgive a man his sin if a man doth not repent him of his sin. There are few of them that do incline to the affirmative because God hath expressly tied himself in the word that pardon must have repentance for sin. Sixthly, forgiveness of sin is accompanied with holy endeavors for the mortification of sin. He that hath the guilt of sin pardoned his lab- pardoned labors to have the power of sin destroyed. Therefore, in Scripture, pardoning mercy and subduing grace, they are both joined together. Micah 7.19, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. There is subduing grace as well as pardoning mercy. Beloved, if God pardons sin, there are real endeavors in the soul to have the power of sin taken away. Indeed, many men in the world do lay claim to pardon, who never have endeavors and holy pursuits after mortification. Many have counterfeit mortification, who play with their sins like fencers, which it may be to give them a touch, a slight blow, but do not fight like warriors either to kill or be killed. But godly men do not play with their sins, but do with their their lusts as a warrior. They do conflict with lusts on these terms, that either we must kill them or they will kill us. Many counterfeit Christians who do lay claim to real pardon have but counterfeit mortifications, I may fitly resemble such men as these to the Persians who had one festival annually where they used this custom that they labored to find out all their venomous creatures as snakes, serpents, and the like, and one day in the year they would kill all which they found, but afterwards they let them increase. Many men in some solemn performances to God will make great ado of killing their lusts, but afterwards they let them increase and live again. Thus much for the six concomitants that do attend a person in a pardoned state. The next is the characters to be given of a pardoned man, of a man whose sin is forgiven. I will name but four characters of a pardoned sinner. First this, he who is brought into a pardoned estate doth greatly admire God and abase self. This is laid down in the 7th of Micah. The prophet brings in the churches, crying out in the extolling of God, Who is a God like unto thee, pardoning iniquity, transgression, and sin? A pardoned man admires God because his grace is free and his bounty is great. And a pardoned man 
abaseth self, because he seeth sin, exceeding sinful. Nehemiah 9. Secondly, a pardoned man doth maintain a holy dread in his heart from committing that sin that he knoweth to be pardoned. A pardoned sinner knoweth this, that before a sin can be pardoned, it cost Christ much, and cost himself much. It cost Christ much blood to expiate the guilt of that sin. It cost him many tears to destroy the power of that sin. Now that sin which he hath smarted for, and Christ hath suffered for, he will not easily commit. Psalm 38, when the psalmist said he would declare his iniquity, then in Psalm 39 he saith, I will take heed to my ways, as if he should have said, I am sorry for my sin, and the Lord hath forgiven me mine iniquity, but here is the result of it, I will take heed to my ways, and of my sinning another time. There is no man that knoweth his sin to be pardoned that can easily run into the commission of it again. It is an excellent expression in the book of Job 10.14, If I sin, then thou makest, uh, markest me, and thou wilt not acquit me from mine iniquity. If I sin, it is not here spoken absolutely and simply, for what man is he that lives and sinneth not? But if I sin as I am charged, that I should be should sin murmuringly and maliciously against God, and I will persist in my sin, saith Job, if I sin as they charge me, what follows? Then God will not take away mine iniquity, he will not pardon my sin. As Job said of himself, you may say of yourselves, if I sin obstinately and pertinaciously, God will not pardon. Thou hast been wicked, and thou wilt be so. Thou hast been profane, and thou wilt be so. This is inconsistent with a pardoned state. The third character of a person whose sin is forgiven is this, to have unfeigned sorrow and remorse of heart for the commission of sin. Sins forgiven are steeped in blood and soaked in tears. Sorrow before pardon is servile and legal. None can sorrow in an evangelical manner, but he who is brought into a pardoned estate. Indeed, there may be a forced and a constrained sorrow which may come from the eyes of unpardoned men. There is this difference between the one and the other. Tears in an unpardoned sinner come from him like water in a still. But tears in a pardoned sinner come from him like water from the clouds. Water will drop from the still, but it is forced by uh, keeping close the still and by the heat of the fire. The fire of hell may make a wicked man aghast, but sorrow for sin in a pardoned man is like water from the clouds that is not forced but doth naturally drop down. Fourth character, he in whom sin is pardoned, is a man in whom is no guile. Psalm 32. Some do take guile in a particular sense, others extend it more largely as a comprehensive word, equivalent to sincerity. He is a man in whose spirit is no guile, an upright man. Thus much for the use of trial. I now come to answer the objections. The first objection Methinks I hear a doubting Christian say, Woe, and alas, what state am I in? I have misgiving thoughts that God hath not pardoned mine iniquities, because I cannot find that I have a heart to mourn for my iniquity. And is it imaginable that Christ should shed blood for those sins which I never shed a tear for? I can mourn for outward small crosses, but I cannot mourn for great inward corruptions. This makes me doubt whether ever God hath pardoned my sin. I shall resolve this objection in these four particulars. First of all, consider that all men have not a like natural tenderness and softness of disposition. Many are of soft dispositions, are naturally inclined to tears. This is not grace, but the ingenuousness and softness of nature. All cannot sorrow alike. There may be grace in a man if his disposition be hard and rugged, yet he cannot shed tears as those that have a tender disposition. Secondly, 
You that make this objection know this, that there may be greater sorrow for sin in the heart when there is no tears for sin flowing from the eye. Tears from the eye doth ease and lighten the mind. There may be the greatest forgive, uh, the greatest sorrow when it can have no vent from the eye. Thirdly, you that make this objection know you must distinguish of a twofold sorrow for sin. First, there is a judicious sorrow, and secondly, a sensitive sorrow. First, there is a judicious sorrow, and this consists in an apprehension in the judgment that sin is the greatest evil in the world, and most to be lamented, branded, opposed, and resisted. Divines do place more strength and height of grace in having an indignation stirred up in the understanding against sin, touching the evil of sin. This is more than to shed a few tears for sin. Now, if thou hast a judicious sorrow to apprehend sin to be a great evil, though it hath not vent at the eye, yet this is godly sorrow for sin. A man that hath the toothache, he will cry out and complain more, and shed more tears happily for the exquisite pain of the toothache than he will do in the burning fever. Yet ask him which he had rather have. He will tell you the toothache. The reason is because the pestilential fever is more hazardous to life. So had you rather lose your children than lose the sense of God's favor. Which had you rather have? Afflictions in the world or willingly commit sin against God. The judgment of a man, if he be a regenerate man, tells him that he had rather a thousand times lose the dearest relation than the manifestation of God's love unto his soul. He had rather endure the greatest affliction than to venture willingly on the least sin. Fourthly, consider that God's own people have oftentimes expressed more sorrow for outward afflictions than they have done for inward corruptions. There is great reason for it, because things of sense do more affect us than things of faith do. Lay a man upon the rack, and he shall more roar and cry than any man in the world shall do in the sense of sin, because the pain is sensitive, and it will have more sense of sorrow. It was thus with good men in scripture. We read much of David's sorrow. He had no rest in his bones by reason of his sin. Yet Mark, when David lost Absalom, oh, what a fit of sorrow he was in, crying out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. We do not read of such cries, Oh, my soul, my soul, oh, what shall I do for thee, my soul? because the sorrow was sensitive, the loss was sensitive. Now, beloved, when God's God's people do express more sensitive sorrow for outward crosses than for inward corruptions, a late author doth quote, an instance out of Jerome, godly woman lost her children, and she wept even to death, yet she could not weep so for her sin. The reason is because things of sense do more affect a man than things of faith, though there be more evil in one sin than in a thousand afflictions. And thus much for the relief of a troubled sinner in answer to the first objection. The second objection is this, methinks I hear another man say, How can I be persuaded that God hath pardoned and forgiven me my sin when I see that I cannot mortify my sin? Surely an unmortified sin must needs be an unpardoned sin. Surely the guilt of sin must remain where the power of sin remains. I cannot find that my sin is fully mortified, therefore I question whether my sin be pardoned. I shall answer this in four particulars to take off the trouble of a perplexed mind. First, no one consider that mortifying grace is a consequent of pardon of sin, and therefore doth not go before it. Micah 7.18, he will turn again, he will have compassion upon us, he will subdue our iniquities, etc. The promise follows, I will subdue thine iniquity, saith God, be not troubled, I have pardoned thee. Secondly, thou that makest this objection against thyself, it may be thou mistakest the nature 
of mortification and takest mortification to be that which it is not. As first it may be a godly Christian doth extend mortification beyond its bounds, as thus it may be thou dost express or extend mortification not to a gracious suppression of sin, but to a total extirpation of sin. And thinkest that because sin is not removed, it is not subdued. Now this is a mistake. Mortification doth not extend so far, but it extends to an abolition of the dominion of sin, not of the being of sin. Sin will be in the heart. As the the tree in Daniel 4.14, he cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit, let the beasts get away from under it, and the fowls from his branches, nevertheless leave the stump of his roots in the earth. So sin in the heart, the branches are cut off by mortification, the luxurious buddings and the blossomings and breakings forth of sin, they are cut off, but the stump, the root of the original sin from which all sin flows and grows, that remains. Daniel 7.12 As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Though thou beest a a mortified man, yet mortification doth not only take away the dominion of sin, and not the life of it, for it is prolonged for a season. Again, thou dost mistake the nature of mortification, when thou dost account that because of the irritations of sin, therefore thou hast not the mortifications of sin. Beloved, lusts may be irritated and stirred up in a mortified heart. Thirdly, you that plead that sin is not pardoned because it is not mortified, consider for your comfort that a sin may be fully pardoned when it is not fully mortified. There is this reason to be given for this, because mortification is not so complete and perfect as remission of sin is. Remission of sin is a perfect act, and all men, though their graces be unequal, yet their forgiveness and pardon is equal and alike because God doth not pardon one sin and not another. But in the work of mortification it is partly done, partly not done. It is a work begun. Therefore sin may be fully pardoned when it is not fully subdued, because sanctification and mortification cannot hold equipage in proportion with remission of sin. Fourthly, you that plead that you are not pardoned, and the guilt of sin flies in your faces because... It is not subdued. I answer that it is an evident token that Christ hath dispossessed the soul of of the power of sin, or taken away the power of sin, seeing the devil doth labor to possess you so often with the guilt of sin in a way of temptation. Observe, if a man did lie under the power of sin, the devil would not suggest to that man the guilt of sin, because then it would awaken a man's conscience and make a poor sinner look after Jesus Christ and after heaven and pardon. Therefore a sinner, under the power and dominion of sin, shall not be troubled under the devil about the guilt of sin. The devil had rather play at small game than not to game. If he cannot damn a man by keeping him under the power of sin, he will terrify him by troubling him with the guilt of sin. Lastly, consider this, that the confessing and contesting with corruptions, it is in the account of God looked upon as the mortification of corruption. Deuteronomy 22.23, If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto an husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, verse 24, then ye shall bring them both out, unto the gate of the city, and you shall stone them with stones, that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so shalt thou put away evil from among you. Verse 25, But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and a man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die. 
all the prevalency of sin over thee which is unwilling. God will charge that on the devil, and account thee guiltless when it hath not thy consent. When thou laborest to suppress vicious corruptions of the heart, God doth hold thee guiltless, though the devil may labor to commit a spiritual rape upon thee. It is a text that I have made use of in the 11th chapter of Leviticus. Divines make great use of it for the comforting of troubled consciences. In the 33rd verse, And every earthen vessel whereinto any of them falleth, whatsoever is in it shall be unclean, and ye shall break it. Nevertheless, a fountain or pit, wherein there is plenty of water, shall be clean, but that which toucheth their carcass shall be unclean. The significancy of this law is this, what that if sin do fall upon a pit of water into a standing pool, because it hath no emotion, it cannot purge itself from the filth cast into it, that is unclean. But if an unclean thing be cast into the fountain of water, that cannot be unclean, for it hath a principle in it to purge and free itself from these unclean things that are cast into it. To show, if sin be in your heart as an unclean thing in a fountain of water, that by reason of your continual motion unto God, your running unto God, you have a principle in you to empty yourselves and to purge yourselves and clear yourselves from those things which the devil doth defile you with. Now you are not unclean, and this should greatly comfort you third objection is this surely i have not surely i have misgiving thoughts that god hath not forgiven me my sin because after i have committed sin i do not discern that my conscience checks me for my sin therefore i may fear if there be no remorse after the commission of sin i may fear that there is no remission this is the strongest objection to make a man fear his pardon as i would say nothing to make a deluded wretch to presume, so I would keep back nothing that might any way establish a troubled mind. Thou sayest thou doest fall into sin, yet thou hast no check and remorse of conscience for sin. Therefore thou fearest. If sin hath no remorse on thy part, it hath no remission on God's part. For answer, first, in the general, know your case is dangerous, but yet it is not desperate. First, it is possible the conscience of a good man may be so disordered through the impetuousness of passion and lust that he may think he doeth well when he doeth ill. Therefore, his conscience never smites him. As it was with Paul, Acts 26.9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul sinned, and he had his doubts before conversion, even as after conversion. Yet this sin troubled him not. He thought he was bound to do many things. So may thy conscience be so far disordered as to think thou doest well when thou doest ill. Jonah 4.9 And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Could Jonah's conscience smite him for his anger when he said he did well? Lord, how far will a godly man go towards the suburbs of hell if God shall let him alone? I do well, saith Jonah, to be angry, even unto death. Secondly, thou makest thou that makest this objection, take this for thy comfort. Consider that many pardoned sinners through heedlessness and in observancy, have not their judgments enlightened to discern sin. And if the judgment hath not an eye to see sin, the conscience will never have an hand to smite for sin. It is a proverb, what the eye sees not, the heart rues not. Nothing that is unknown can be the object of desire. Neither can anything that is unknown be the object of sorrow. Unknown miseries we weep not for, but miseries we know, those we mourn for. If a man's judgment be not enlightened to see sin, he can never mourn for it. He may live and die in a sin, 
that his judgment is not convinced of to be a sin. Thus the godly in the Old Testament lived in the sin of polygamy, marrying of many wives. They knew not it was a sin, had they took liberty to take as many wives as they would. A godly man that holds an error, conscience may never smite him for it, because his judgment is mistaken. His judgment thinks he holds the truth, and therefore conscience cannot smite him for holding an error. Thirdly, take this by way of answer that the conscience of a pardoned sinner may be so far benumbed that a man may continue under the guilt of known sins and conscience never check him for it for a long time. This is a further gradation that when he knoweth he sins against God, yet I say conscience may be so far benumbed that for a season he may not be tortured and smitten in conscience for his sin. David could not be so ignorant of God's law that lying with another man's wife was sin, yet David did continue nine months at least without remorse for it. When when Nathan came and reproved him, then said he, I have sinned, I have sinned. O beloved, if God doth but let a sinner's conscience alone, though he be a good man, yet he may continue for a long time under a known sin, and conscience not work remorse or trouble in him. Fourthly, take this for comfort that there is no godly man's conscience in the world that is always alike in office, but sometimes it may be in office, sometimes out of office. Sometimes a roaring, galling, awakening conscience, and sometimes a stupefied, a benumbed, and a feared, a seared conscience. No man's conscience is always alike in office. It is sensible at one time and seared up another time. Pregnant instances, David, at one time his heart smote him for the appearance of an evil, yet at another time his conscience did not smite him for murdering Uriah. Again, at another time David's conscience smote him but for a vainglory in numbering the people. It was only vainglory that he would please himself in a mustered army, yet at another time David's conscience did not smite him for adultery. O beloved, how will a man's conscience lie asleep and not trouble him for an evil if God lets him alone? Fifthly, a step further, it is possible that the conscience of a pardoned sinner may be in so deep a sleep and so much out of office for a while that he may rather put his wits a work to hide his sin than his conscience on work to check him for sin. To give you an instance for this, it is plain in the case of David. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, but he did not put his conscience on work to check him for his sin. But he did put his wits on work to hide the sin. Four projects David had to hide the sin. First, he sent for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, that so Uriah might come and lie with his wife, that so he might hide David's uncleanness, Second Samuel 11. Secondly, he made Uriah drunk, and so thought that surely when he, he was drunk, that drunkenness would provoke him with a desire to go to his own house. Thirdly, he did plot Uriah's death, that so there might be no clamor on his part for the defilement of his wife. And lastly, David would have fathered his plot on providence, for David himself had plotted the death of Uriah, Mark David's project. A good man did put his wits on work and made shifts to hide his sin, yet all this while did not put conscience on work to check him for his sin. Oh, how near the suburbs of hell may a godly man go, and yet go to heaven. Sixthly, this is the furthest step of all. Take this for thy comfort. It is possible that the conscience of a pardoned sinner may not smite him for those very sins that a heathen man, by the light of a natural conscience, may be ashamed of. And this is clear in the case of Abraham, Genesis 20, verse 9. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us, and what have I offended thee, that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. 
For this falsehood Abraham's conscience never smote him, yet a heathen, by the light of a natural conscience, rebuked Abraham for it. Abimelech, a heathen, did tell Abraham, Thou hast done deeds that ought not to be done. And thus I have gone very far in answering this objection. And I have done it for to stay the troubles of a perplexed conscience, not to make any man presumptuous. These six steps are near going down to the shambles of death, yet it is possible that a pardon sinner may have his conscience thus deluded and out of office. Methinks I hear many a presumptuous heart allege, if this be true, that thou uh, that you say a pardoned sinner may go thus near hell and yet come to heaven, if good men may sin a sin and yet conscience never trouble them, then I hope that I may have my sin pardoned as well as the best. Now lest this objection might lurk in the heart of any man that hears me, I will turn the scales, and that no man might be presumptuous and entertain false persuasions touching pardon, I shall show you that though a godly man may have his conscience out of office to smite him for sin, yet in that case there is great difference between a pardoned sinner and an unpardoned. And there are these five particular differences. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan Hard Drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.